Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. How's your week, Shane? It's been better than Devin Nunes' week. I think all of our weeks have been better <laughs> yeah. than Devin Nunes. Okay, the real Nunes. question is, Devin Nunes has the worst who, week ever. who had a worse week, Devin Nunes or Paul Ryan? Ooh, that's a tough one. Well, Certainly in our world, Devin Nunes, but I'm going to go with Paul Ryan. For yeah. Ryan. But hang on a second. The Paul Ryan thing, we're not still talking about it. The De- Devin Nunes, the agony But we'll be is, talking it, about that again. It's, <laughs> it's just been extended. You know, every time you think he's done, he, he's <laughs> he ain't not done. done. Yet. Yeah. Right when you think he's done, he just keeps hitting himself in the head. Well, right. no, you know, he, he's in a hole and he was handed a shovel and he's still digging. He's going to pull us in that hole before it's over. What else do you do? You're getting in here with me. It's it's the thing about being, uh, you know, just not very bright. I think that's really hurting him. (laughs) Oh, Ben, so mean. Sorry. I mean, you're not the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee. I mean, I think he really Although if you were, we wouldn't be in this mess. (laughs) You know, I I think I can safely say that if I were the chairman of the House uh, Intelligence Committee... I would have made none of the mistakes that Devin Nunez made this week. I'm, I'm, there were other mistakes I'm sure I would have made. I'm maybe cracking under the pressure, but sneaking off to the White House to get fed talking points by somebody you've decided is a source and then announcing it and rushing back to the White House to tell the president, not like something I would have thought to do. Tonight on National Geographic. Inside the mind of Devin News. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the We Need to Talk About Devin edition. I'm Shane Harris of the Wall Street Journal. We're here in the Jungle Studio today with a different crew. We're shaking it up. We got Ben Wittes, Tamara Coffin Wittes. Hi, guys. Hi, Shane. She's and back. And making her vocal debut on the podcast, Quinta Jurassic. No, I've been on the podcast before. Have you been on it before? In a previous life. Did No, were you? <laughs> yeah. You so were a guest Go, go back and check the archive. Damn. I was right. that forgettable? No, no, no. It's just that then you became the audio engineer, and it was like, it was a fixture. And then it was like you were doing all the work that we had to do before, and <laughs> the, now you're doing both well, today Now I've, I've unseated time. Susan. The back office has come to the front. <laughs> wow. We're going to get a picture of Quinta being both on... Both audio engineer and uh, presence on, She's on the show. She's listening to us on two It's levels. like like Devin Nunes. He's both chairing Hipsy and he's flacking for the White House. That's right. That's <laughs> this is the new thing. This is the new thing is to be like multitasking and like double, dual adding. We can all be like Mike Rogers. <laughs> how did Mike Rogers get into that, that's it? That's how I would describe it. Oh, dual had that Man. Mike Rogers. I thought you meant I Devin went like <laughs> way too inside for sorry. even this podcast. Sorry, sorry. I thought you meant the other Mike Rogers who was Devin Nunez's <laughs> predecessor. Oh, yeah. Who does he have like the CNN show now? Yeah, he's got his own thing, but he's not dual hatted, so I was confused. <laughs> What's his show? It's not locked up abroad, it's the other one. <laughs> The things you know, Shane. <laughs> Have you ever watched that show? No. Locked Up Abroad is great. 
Oh, it's so good. They have like these, like you know, seemingly like you know, perfectly like normal people like next door, uh, like you know, like the woman who's like you know, she's like fifty five and she's a mother of two, and she's telling this story about going on vacation to Guatemala, or whatever. And it turns out she like suddenly developed a life as a drug mule and spent like seven years in a prison in Guatemala. This is a show. Yeah, it's great. They kind of like build up the tension. <laughs> And they're but all people, but it's not hosted by Mike Rogers. No, it's not neither of them. Rogers. No, exactly. And they said they're they're out now, but they basically tell their experience <laughs> of being you know, Americans in a foreign prison. It's like Midnight Express on the Learning Channel. It's wow. great. So I have an important announcement, um, which is I was in Austin, Texas last week, and I, after my panel, was approached once again by the gentleman uh, who is a student at UT Law School. Whose dog is a fan of rational security? Get out. And uh, and I asked him, "Is the dog still listening?" And yes, the dog is still listening to rational security. So this is just this is the best dog in the country, yeah, my friends. Serious canine listenership going on for rational security. If you have a nervous or anxious dog at home, we we suggest you try. Uh, a course of rational security podcastry we for will your dog. Put that dog to sleep for you. <laughs> totally, and not like li- I mean, like the figurative. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. no, I'm, no, the literal, no, not no, the no, literal. To be clear, that, that dog, dog is still alive. That dog was going to listen to us and lie down, and you know, just and be happy, chill. Yeah, give him a give him something to chew on. Well, I can beat your dog, I, or rather, I can see Don't your dog. Let's do <laughs> the podcast. We'll beat your dog. It's the cruelty to animals. How did we get here? <laughs> Luck, lucked up abroad. I see your dog in Austin, Texas, and I raise it to uh, APAC convention goers that I met while speaking at Human APAC this or week. Canine. Human, not canine. Both rational security listeners, and I was thrilled to meet them. Excellent. That's awesome. Um, well, that's that's very very good. I uh, I would love to hear from all of our listeners, and definitely don't let us pets it for you. Yeah, and you don't have to have a dog or go to yeah. APAC to listen to Rational Security. All right, this week on the podcast, Devin Nunez, Devin Nunez, and it's Nunez, not Nunez. We can talk about that too. Throws a wrench into the House's Russia investigation. Meanwhile, the Senate investigation actually hasn't come off the rails. And should countries declare certain kinds of cyber attacks off limits plus object lessons? Um, all right. So we started the show actually at the top by talking about Devin Nunes's adventure on the White House grounds. It was a little confusing at first because he was reportedly on the White House grounds but not in the White House. And then some people thought maybe he was the fence jumper. But it turns out he was actually in the executive office building. Having jumped the fence. Having jumped the fence. <laughs> or maybe not, because the White House still wants to. Maybe he just jumped say, the shark. <laughs> right, he definitely jumped. He like jumped it, jumped back again, and then jumped again. And now it's a killer whale. It's just a, <laughs> There's some serious shark jumping. Some lots of shark jumping is going on. It's not clear who cleared him into the White House. The White House will not say. Well, that's also because they're not releasing their visitor logs publicly, unlike the previous White House. That's true. And actually, Sean Spicer from the podium at one point when this when this this story was first developing said well i'm not sure if members of congress actually need to be cleared in to which i tweeted a link to the previous visitor log which showed <laughs> devin Nunes being cleared in seven times uh so yes you do have to be cleared in there is a record someplace of it even if it's not public but as far as we can best understand this story let me see if i can just try to quickly just encapsulate what happened so i guess it would be because if you can you're in 
a very rarefied group of people. Hey, he's even, a trained journalist. Even he can encapsulate anything. That's right. So Monday last, I guess this would have been, Devin Nunes, we think, gets some kind of a call. This has been reported, although his staff says this part isn't accurate, but gets some kind of a call. Some bat signal goes up, and Devin Nunes goes over to the White House grounds, uh, goes into the EEOB, National Security Council offices, we presume, and while there is given some information about intelligence reports concerning foreign intelligence targets in which U.S. persons were incidentally collected. So it's not entirely clear whether foreign person one was talking to U.S. person one and that was picked up or whether foreign person one was talking to foreign person two and that information, or they were talking about U.S. person one anyway. Takes this information the next day that he got from someone in the White House, goes back and gives it to the president the next day. Publicly, this becomes a new narrative that uh, there was uh, surveillance picking up members of the Trump transition team, which kind of sort of sounds like the tweet that Donald Trump did a month ago about his wires being tapped. But then Devin Nunes says, no, 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 it's not about that, but it's still really bad. And what we think the, the what it, this involves at this point is inappropriate either incidental collection of U.S. persons or inappropriate unmasking of the names of U.S. persons in those reports. It seems like he's kind of concerned about both of those things. Of course, we still don't know exactly what he's concerned about because he won't share won't the actual share evidence the with anyone. Including with his own committee. Which Correct. which to be clear, he first said that he was going to do right, and, and then walked that back last right. night. So what it seems like we're talking about here now is intelligence reports on lawful surveillance of foreign people talking about the Trump transition, which seems completely unsurprising that A, they'd be talking about the Trump transition and B, that intelligence reports about that exist. But Nunes seems to believe this is part of some kind of systematic effort to inappropriately unmask the names of U.S. persons slash Trump transition personnel in those reports and then spread said reports around in the administration. So what? They could be leaked to journalists. They could be talked about. Well, so but the, all of that is a hypothesis, right, mm -hmm. about what motivated Nunes or even why he's so upset, right? Like. I think what's so interesting here is that what we know is that Nunes' committee is supposed to be conducting this investigation into Russian hacking of the election. And Nunes just threw a huge amount of dust into the air by making an allegation, the motivation for his concern about which is unclear, it is opaque, um, and then not, not providing any further information either to the press or the public, or to his own committee members, majority or minority. So nobody has any basis on which to assess what he's saying. And clearly, he has a theory behind what he's doing. Clearly, he thinks this is really important, or he wouldn't have uh, interrupted the, the hearings process that his own committee, which he chairs, has been convening. He wouldn't have been so out of order as to uh, go brief the president before briefing his own um, fellow committee members. So clearly this must be really, really important and really, really concerning. And yet somehow he can't communicate to any of us why. Right. So we're left to sort of gin up theories uh, about why. 
Uh, but we don't actually know. It's I'm frankly mystified. <laughs> Look, there's a few possibilities here, and none of them amounts to a national scandal of the type that would justify the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, House Intelligence Committee, behaving that way. So, possibility number one is that there was incidental collection that touched, uh, that included members of the Trump transition. Uh, so frankly, that would be surprising if it didn't happen. A transition team uh, routinely contacts lots and lots of people uh, abroad. Uh, those people might be subject to collection. This transition team notably uh, did a lot of foreign contacts without consulting the State Department uh, and without deconflicting things with the you know actual U.S. government. Uh, and so it would be very surprising if some of it were not incidentally intercepted. Um, second possibility is that what he's upset about is that – and what he's suggested is that uh, um, you know, people, uh, people's identities were unmasked either by actually unmasking them or by it being clear from context who they were likely to be. Um, Which he did say he could tell even though some names were masked that he could tell who they were. Right. So, first of all, there is nothing. So then, what he's upset about is that in intelligence reports which are being disseminated, names are evident, but no, but but that would not be harmful to those individuals in a public sense because the public wouldn't know except that he came out and gave a press conference about well, it. Well, so 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 first of all, there's nothing inappropriate about unmasking people under under the circumstance under circumstances that call for. Unmasking, and there are people in the government who have the authority to do that, and there are other people in the government who have the authority to request that people be unmasked. Uh, and so, in and of itself, there's nothing remotely inappropriate about, you know, if you're say uh, looking at the China-Taiwan relationship, and all of a sudden the president's people have, or the president-elect's people have, a flurry of communications with the people around the president uh, on Taiwan, and they seem to be setting up a phone call for the incoming president to have flagged for the NSC, wait a minute, you know, the president of Taiwan seems to think he's about to get a phone call from Donald Trump. Uh, that's called intelligence yeah. reporting, and there's just absolutely nothing wrong with that. And the fact so that why why would you call a press conference about it? Well, then? so so right as so I'm saying, that would not justify, at least not in my judgment, you know, going bananas over. It would be kind of what you would expect uh, NSA and NSC to do under those circumstances. So the third possibility, which Nunes has teased, but not, uh, is that. There seems to have been some impropriety in the unmasking or incidental collection. That right. that he is, says there's no intelligence value that he could see. In right. This. That that they were disseminating stuff uh, related to U.S. persons that is of no intelligence value. Now, if that were true, that would be actually a real problem. He has provided no evidence of that whatsoever. He's provided no evidence of anything whatsoever. Uh, and so, but my... even if that were true, and it were a real problem, isn't that something that in your normal oversight role as chairman of the intelligence committee you would take up with right. the executive branch in the normal course of like why would you 
A, rush and brief the president, and B, call a press conference right. to talk about so, it. Well, so, so the press conference is, 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 is a different thing still because all of this material is presumptively classified. And there's uh, it's very hard for me to, to understand how even if everything were true and everything were as bad as Devin Nunes thinks it is, why it is appropriate to call a press conference about it at all. It's actually classified you know, FISA or 12333 uh, intercepts that you're not supposed to be talking about. So, uh, and then finally, there's this one other weird element to it, which is if the White House has this information, and remember that the National Security Council is actually part of the White House, why does it need to launder this information through Devin Nunes? That is, call him over in the middle of the night to review the information, go back, then the next day to rush over in public and present it to the president as there was some information that he developed rather than was spoon-fed him by the White House itself. Um, And none of those questions have obvious answers as far as I'm concerned. And at least until we, we get some kind of reasonable answers to them, which I, I sort of doubt are forthcoming. I can't imagine that Devin Nunes remains a credible leader for any investigation related to the intelligence community or Russia. Yeah, I mean, I think this this falls into the category where someone in Trump's orbit does something nuts and everyone like runs around with their hair on fire. And then, you know, the other half of the room says like, ah, but you've, this is actually a distraction from the real thing. Mm -hmm. Right. And then we go back and forth on what's a distraction from what. And I do think for all the reasons we've just discussed, if this was intended to be a distraction from the Russia investigation, it is a catastrophic failure because all it's done is draw it out even more in the public eye, draw attention to potential impropriety in terms of the White House's contacts with Nunes, um, force the White House to sort of make statements on this progression of bizarre issues, um, and possibly raise the odds of there being some kind of independent investigation, whereas previously they'd had this sort of this Hipsy investigation that was at the very least chaired by Nunes and was sort of tame at, in a, in that sense. I What I do think you can, it makes a little more sense if you look at what uh, Representative Adam Schiff, who's the ranking member, said in one of his many press conferences that was abruptly called in response to one of Nunes's many press conferences. So everyone's sort of running back and forth across the hill and on C-SPAN where he suggested that Nunes had done this essentially to give Trump cover for the... Uh, infamous wiretapping yeah. tweets. Um, that's tapping with two Ps, obviously. Sure. So, which I actually, I mean, is incredibly stupid to be completely clear. Well, it also but, but seems it like an incredibly um, torturous oh, route yeah. to go in order to lend credibility to something which the base already gives credit to and the rest of the world has already discredited. So, right. like, why are why do we still care about this? Well, but it, but what it does do is not target right. Trump Tower. But but right. the way that he phrased it was confused enough. Yeah. That it, it he it garbled like it and then it got further garbled. 
And yeah. that, so if you're someone who's like <clears throat> listening to it on the other end, it's gone through so many rounds of telephone yeah. that they actually have succeeded in confusing what the hell it is we're talking about. To be clear, I'm saying that they, they would be doing this nefarious scheme in service of an incredibly stupid end, which is proving that Trump may not have been wrong in a series of dumb tweets that he tweeted right, like, like a few weeks like, it's profoundly there was a stupid on the president you didn't do him any favor. right exactly right. there's i think there's another possibility now too that I'm, and I'm just coming to this recently but if we go back and we i think we talked about this in the previous podcast if you look go back and listen to the hearing i watched the hearing where jim comey testified it felt like it was two hearings with the democrats focusing on the russian interference in the elections and the republicans focusing on who was leaking information about mike flynn and other things related to russia to the press if Devin Nunes thinks that people inappropriately unmasked names in intelligence reports, which he said that he, that's his concern, it obviously pertains to Obama administration officials unmasking said reports. And if he thinks that happened, it's not a far leap to think that he also thinks these people involved in unmasking reports may have been leaking information about what's in the reports. So this your could- hypothesis is that he's been focused the entire time on constructing a narrative around this investigation that is about inappropriate leaking and disclosure of information by Obama officials. Right. And and that is what the story should be here, not Russian hacking of the U.S. electoral process. It makes a lot of Although, sense of that that's I- the conclusion to me, that that's what he's driving at and would like to have a big reveal where he says, and I'm going to show you who did this. I have, communists I have a list of communist state department <laughs> of unmaskers. <laughs> if that's if leaking is his concern, he just leaked classified yeah. information, yeah. right? So, so he really shot himself in the foot there. Well, yeah. and but in he'll, that he'll sense, keep going it, on his good foot. <laughs> it rem- it reminded me so much of Kevin McCarthy when he was running for speaker just a few short months ago, running for speaker of the house, um, and thinking he was being devilishly clever uh, when he said. Everybody thought Hillary was unbeatable, but then we had a Benghazi investigation <laughs> and sort of revealed for the world the politicized purpose and intent of, of that investigation and and therefore sort of pulled back the curtain in a way that shot himself in the foot and he yeah. ended up dropping out of the speaker's race. So, you know, to me, this is Nunes trying to do something fiendishly clever. Uh, and showing himself up to be a fool or, you know, maybe like the ringmaster of a three ring circus. If you trip over the, the, uh, monkeys and the bicycles on your way into the ring. <laughs> but there are some adults on Capitol Hill, right? Yeah. So there is not a three ring circus, it would appear on the Senate side, uh, where the Senate Intelligence Committee's investigation, I guess you'd say parallel investigation. They're looking at many of the same things. Um, actually is proceeding, you know, quite methodically and without any obvious incidents. And so uh, we're recording this on Wednesday afternoon. Uh, Chairman Burr and Vice Chairman Warner just had a joint press conference. They were very civil. They actually revealed some pretty interesting things. So they said uh, that there are seven permanent staff members who've been assigned to this topic. That's a a pretty significant number. Um, They have been out to Langley over the past four weeks have looked at intelligence information. I'm not sure they mentioned CIA, but that has been confirmed that they have been out there. Uh, they are going through, uh, I think what he characterizes thousands of documents and also raw intelligence products. 
reviewing those, and they're getting near the end of that period. They're going to interview at least 20 people. They've already scheduled five of those interviews. And one of the things that I thought was really illuminating, and it was easy to miss, um, Mark Warner said, um, you know, yes, obviously the intelligence community did produce an assessment last year about Russian interference in the election. And there was kind of that big report that came out, which President Obama had said, I want to get this out the door before I leave. Uh, what Senator Warner said was there's also a lot that was left on the cutting room floor that we're looking at. So what what he's kind of helped us understand here is that there's a lot of stuff that the intelligence community, which had to arrive at this consensus document in a really short period of time, didn't have a chance to get to and fully assess. And that is where committee investigators are picking up. And I think one presumes the FBI probably is some version of that, of looking into things that we just may not even know about yet. Well, so. and, and, and critically, there... That document that was released reflects only what there was a uni- what there was unanimity about, right. and right. and right. it was focused on analytical conclusions. It was not laying out a whole lot of evidence. That wasn't the structure of it, right? It wasn't like we find that Roger Stone did the following, right? Things. It was yeah. it was not a narrative in any sense. But there's presumably a lot of things that the FBI would say it has confidence in that CIA would not have confidence right. in, or vice versa, or stuff that NSA believes. You know, and so if you're a congressional investigation and you don't have to work only in the space of the Venn diagram, that's the the consensus overlap of all of the intelligence agencies, but you can actually try to follow leads um, by that individual agencies believe. And remember, there has been substantial investigative development since then. You may be in a position to to at least somewhat advance the ball. You know, the other thing I would say is, I, I mean, there, whereas on the House side, as as you noted, Shane, there were sort of two competing narratives in the HIPSI hearings. On Senate side, there does seem to be greater unanimity across party lines in terms of what's the purpose of this investigation. And it's it's backward looking to develop a narrative of what happened, but it's also forward looking to understand the vulnerabilities and how to, you know, combat these kinds of attempts to influence our electoral process in the future. And, you know, the politics are quite different in that, um, whereas on the House side, the Republicans are united in trying to defend the White House from a lot of scrutiny here. Um, Senate side, we have, you know, senior Senate Republicans who are really vocally concerned about Russian interference. And so Burr is accountable to his colleagues, um, and they are keeping him honest in a way that, you know, that dynamic simply doesn't exist in the House. Yeah. And, and I think that they're, and they've gone out of their way to draw the comparison between the two, I think, which tells me that these guys do feel like eventually they are going to arrive at some concluding point. I mean, it may take a long time. That's well, the and thing. they haven't defined a timeline. No, they haven't this, defined so. a timeline, but they think they feel like they're going to, they want to get there. 20 right? years from now, when <laughs> Trump is like retired on a golf course somewhere, we will get the truth. This is also, I think the fact that, and the House said this too, and I, and I know from talking to people on the Senate side that they feel this way as well. There's just so much stuff to go through that I don't think either of these committees really feel like they're equipped with the investigative manpower to do it, at least in a really timely fashion, uh, which sort of begs the question again of, 
wouldn't it be better if we had an independent commission with a full staff that was fully funded and you had, you know, dozens of people that you could throw at this? Right. I mean, the 9-11 commission, you know, had an ambitious timeline and so on, but it also had a big old staff. Right. Thing, sorry, right. So look, I mean, the 9-11 commission is, for reasons that Susan Hennessy and I have written, is actually a bad model for this. But a select committee that does not have other responsibilities, you know, and remember, these intelligence committees have as their day jobs the routine oversight of the intelligence committee community. And this year, that includes 702 reauthorization. It includes all kinds of things that, you know, are not part of this investigation. And seven people working this investigation, it's impressive that they can devote that kind of staff, but that's not a lot of staff. And uh, it's actually more than I would have thought they would have been able to commit to. And it's certainly fewer than we're working on it within the intelligence community. Right. And so, you know, it does show the value of a different structure. Um, That said, look, the Senate Intelligence Committee has been in notable contrast to the House Intelligence Committee. Uh, Burr had one significant misstep early on, uh, but you have not seen the day-to-day friction between him and Warner that you're seeing on the other side uh, of the hill. And you also have not seen a lot of fireworks or drama uh, just in general out of that out of that committee. They're doing what they're doing mostly pretty quietly. Uh, and that's actually a sign, I think, that there's you know some life in that investigation. Well, I guess here's the here's the question for you guys briefly. Given what a shit show the House investigation has become, um, do you think that that puts pressure on the Senate committee to do what it's clearly been avoiding doing, which is to hold public hearings and to do more of its work communicating with the public in real time? Well, so yeah, I mean that's my question: is whether the the House committee investigation both imploding and exploding to quote both Donald Trump and Reince Priebus <laughs> um, makes it does actually increase the odds of some kind of independent investigation. I mean, after Nunes, I'm not sure what point in the Nunes saga this happened, but John McCain called for a select committee. Although um, he'd done that long before. Right. Too. But but he, he sort of he has stronger evidence, right? right. When you can point sure. to Devin Nunes and say, look at this clown, like whether whether it actually increases the odds of that happening or whether because the Senate can kind of play off the House and say, okay, like, we got this. We're the responsible adults. We're, we're in control. Yeah. We're calm. We're going to hold hearings, whether you can kind of shunt that to the Senate, and that'll put the pressure on the Senate that otherwise would have been sort of moving toward an independent. Yeah, that feels yeah. right to me. Like, I mean, to your point, Tammy, it's like if, if the Senate can kind of step in here and say, no, hold on a second, we'll do public hearings. And Burr even said this today where he said, you know, some of these interviews that we're going to do may be public. We may do a hearing. They're going to do a hearing on Thursday. It's more, it's experts kind of talking about mm-hmm. Russian hacking and all that. It's not from any current officials, so it's not going to be a lot of fireworks. But it's, it's, it is kind of putting the pressure on them to step in and say, not only are we going to sort of be like the adult investigation, but we're going to have to be transparent about it too. Because it can't, I mean, the answer can't be the House Intelligence Committee meeting, committee hearing or investigation has gone into the ditch and the Senate is working fine, but you'll never hear anything about it. Okay. So here's my, here's my other question. Is the House 
committee process now dead. Nunez having canceled the hearing that was scheduled for this week. Um, along with all meetings yeah. of the committee. Right. Yeah. I mean, is is there going to be more here? Is Can Nunez sort of drive this investigation in whatever insane direction he wants to? Does he need the agreement of the minority side? Um, it, is anything going to happen on the House side? Is it salvageable? I think, I mean, I, I could imagine Adam Schiff, uh, you know, I think probably fairly shrewdly has avoided calling for the investigation to shut down. He is saying that Nunes should recuse himself. I think that what Schiff is going to have to decide at some point is whether he just pulls the Democrats out. And essentially, and you hear kind of Nunes calling his bluff on that, saying, well, if the Democrats don't want to be a part of this investigation, we're going to go forward without them. That will immediately make it a not credible investigation. Then it'll be like Benghazi all over again. Right, exactly, exactly. I mean, it, it, or even if maybe, maybe even different, if the Democrats simply do not participate in it at all uh, and don't even show up for right, it. Right, although I think that would be a mistake for Schiff's purposes because Schiff, for all of the uh, clown show of this committee, Schiff's actually gotten a lot of work done. Uh, you know, he got the FBI director last week to announce publicly that there was this investigation. He got the FBI director to repudiate the president's tweets. Uh, you know, but he so, was only able to do that with the acquiescence of his chairman, right? But the point is, he's managed to control. Despite Nunez's craziness, he's managed to get a lot of important stuff on the record, and he's had more impact on the public agenda than Nunez, which has. I think drives Nunez crazy. Yes, he I won't thought. say it publicly, but yeah. I think that's right. And so, so I think <laughs> at from, the end of the day, it's all about my ego. So, you know, I I think from Schiff's point of view, if you walk out and you you're actually seeding the field in an environment in which, despite all the kookiness. You're doing pretty well. Yeah. I'm, I'm not really sure why Schiff would want to give that up. I think the American people should be proud and grateful that their representatives are working so hard on their behalf. Well, and also Devin Nunes uh, is not running for Senate. <laughs> <laughs> and staying in the investigation gives you a very nice platform if you might be the ranking member of the House Intelligence Committee <laughs> contemplating a Senate run in California. Ooh, I, good point. I, I also think that if you're contemplating the possibility that Sally Yates may come up and testify, yes. uh, you and may not want to have executive privilege asserted against the story <laughs> she may have to tell about General Flynn. It might be a very good thing for you to be part of that investigation at least long enough for you to have a chance to question her. Yeah, right. I mean, we we haven't even touched on how Sally Yates fits into this whole mess. Right, so Sally Yates, exactly. So <laughs> that, That's a whole nother thing. Just quickly recap, I'm going to make a prediction. You know, Sally Yates, the acting attorney general who Donald Trump fired after she would not implement the his immigration travel ban, uh, was going to be called. Uh, she was going to be a witness along with former CIA director John Brennan and the former DNI Jim Clapper. Uh, undoubtedly would have been asked questions about Mike Flynn and 
what she told the White House counsel about Mike Flynn's conversations with the Russian ambassador, et cetera. Um, a, there's still the TikTok on this, I think, is still kind of being fleshed out. But essentially, Nuna says, no, we're canceling the hearing. We don't need to hear from you. Um, I will make a prediction, which is that going along Nunes's lines of he is trying to drive towards some kind of narrative about improper unmasking and leaking of information, uh, would love to see Sally Yates come up and testify now so that he can sit there and grill her and ask her, were you aware of any unmasking? Did you unmask any of these names? Do you know who may have leaked this stuff? And really kind of turn it into <clears throat> a leak hunt and calling up this you know, former Obama administration official who the president fired and using her as the punching bag for that. So but then why would he have canceled the hearing? I, can, I don't think he's thinking that many steps ahead. <laughs> like, to be clear, I think I am thinking farther ahead than the chairman is Wait, right was, now. He was maybe looking there, but then he tripped over the monkey. Right. Right. But this is like this, it feels like it's going this direction right now. I'm, it really does. I'm not with you on this, Shane. Because, all right. Devin Nunes gets to go up and make, in general, vague terms, references to intelligence reporting where names were unmasked. And then he can semi-plausibly claim, well, that was no – those were not classified because I didn't talk about any specific document. But if you've got Sally Yates in front of you and you want to ask her under oath, did you unmask Shane Harris's name in this intelligence report – you can't talk about that in an open setting unless that report's been declassified. Now, I don't know of any intelligence reporting in which anybody's name is unmasked that has been declassified, including, by the way, General Flynn. I don't think that report has been has been declassified. So how do you have that conversation in an open hearing? Nobody said it was a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> He'll, he'll figure that out by the time the hearing comes up. All right. Um, okay, let's move on to our third segment. Um, <clears throat> so the Carnegie Endowment has actually a, a very interesting paper that came out this week um, calling on the G20 to issue a statement that nations should not use cyber attacks to manipulate financial information. That nations be- shall not lift up swords against nations. <clears throat> and right. we should say that we, we also ran a post on this on Lawfare by the <clears throat> authors, which you should all read. You did? That's an excellent report. One of the co-writers is uh, my friend Tim Maurer, who I think is a really great thinker on this stuff. Um, essentially what they're getting at is kind of, I think it's fair to say, one of the nightmare cyber scenarios out there, uh, which kind of goes something like this. And in fact, there's actually this great story about uh, Mike McConnell, who was then the DNI, and Hank Paulson, who was the Treasury Secretary, laying this vision out for George W. Bush in the Oval Office in 2007. But then there was that Batman movie where Bane did it. Yeah, no, seriously, it's the same thing. Okay, see, you're picking this up, right? right? You're making this connection already. Um, Wait, you're you're saying they sketched out for George Bush and he wrote it into the Batman movie? Yes, amazing, right? <laughs> uh, so the scenario Art imitates life, right? The scenario basically goes like this: where McConnell says, like, if on nine eleven, instead of hijackers flying planes into building, we had hackers getting into the database of a major bank or a financial exchange and changing the data and manipulating it such that, for instance, uh, you couldn't trust that the timestamps on when transactions had closed or posted were accurate, or you 
you couldn't trust that data was being routed to the money was being routed to the right accounts. Like um, I thought I had dumped on my stock right before the bomb went off, but it yeah. was actually after. There you go. Yeah. So if that happened, the whole system would collapse because <laughs> everyone would say, ah, we don't know what the information is. We have no confidence in the data and the whole system rests on data information that we look at on the screen and say, this is accurate. Uh, and Bush reportedly was really unnerved by this and set off a whole new set of policies to basically, you know, go fix the internet. He turned to McConnell and said, you brought this in here. You've got 30 days to fix it. So Paulson agreed this was a big problem when he ran Goldman Sachs. This was a huge issue. And so now the question is, and the G20 have already issued a communique essentially saying that integrity of the financial system uh, is a, something we should be really concerned about. Hey, terrorists, guess what we're really worried about? <laughs> right, right, is this. Uh, but now is this proposal from Carnegie about, you know, that they should make a definitive statement that this kind of cyber attack is off limits. We will not do this. And part of the logic of this goes that <clears throat> if you do that, it makes it easier for the community of nations when Iran or North Korea does something like this, uh, which it looks sure looks like they might be well positioned to do given their past behavior, uh, they can isolate them more. And this goes to sort of the norms setting of this is the kind of thing that is simply uh, unthinkable, unconscionable in Like, cyberspace. say, chemical weapons, which, you know, when governments use them against their own civilians repeatedly over the course of a six-year war, uh, and the international community outlawed them, oh, a century ago. You sound very skeptical. I'm sorry. I'm a little cynical about the whole <laughs> international law but outlawing so, yeah, so weapons. Take that so, up, because there's a, that, I think that, that is so, the counterpoint to this. So I actually think, this. Uh, in defense of... of Tim's idea, which I've talked to him about pretty extensively, um, I think that that there's a difference, which is that when Bashar Assad or uh, or Saddam, Saddam Hussein, Hussein or uh, 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 Nasser um, uh, uh, uses chemical weapons, and people forget that Nasser used chemical weapons in in Yemen, um, it doesn't affect the rest of the world. It's just a morally abhorrent thing that we all oppose. But the argument about the financial system is that if you destabilize the financial system, that actually affects the entire world right away. And so you may be, you know, attacking the financial institution in New York because you hate the United States and that's you sort of see it as an attack on the United States. But it's actually an attack on financial confidence in the system as a whole. And you could uh, – so if you, know, if you look at uh, the way the financial crisis started, it started because of loss of confidence in specific institutions. And ditto uh, the uh, Asian financial crisis you know, a, a, a decade earlier – and so the argument is that uh, for reasons of pure self-interest, a much greater percentage of the world has an interest in enforcing this norm than, uh, you know, these sort of moral ban this weapon that, that, that we dream up. Okay, fair point. I actually think that there might be a somewhat different logic um, favoring this sort of move. So you're making the argument that this creates some kind of deterrent effect. Um, I actually think that when you're talking about cyber attacks, there is always the problem of attribution. And when you have a significant group of capable 
modern countries, i.e. the G20, who all say together, we aren't going to do this, then when an attack happens, you can narrow down the list of potential perpetrators much more quickly. So I, I think it's less about, you know, preventing a breakdown of confidence in the market because that is going to happen. If such an attack occurs, it will happen. The economic effect will be almost instantaneous. Um, and I don't think that the norm setting really helps, but it does help with the attribution issue. Um, and I, and I think it could potentially help with the sort of punishment issue or the accountability issue, um, which is related to attribution. And so if all, if the G20 countries say up front, we all agree that none of us will do this, um, then when it, if it happens and a claim of attribution is made, they will all be more likely to accept that claim of attribution. Yeah. So in other words, I don't think it's entirely worthless, but. Yeah. But I think, it's, I think it falls in the category also of sort of. I don't know. Maybe I'm <clears throat> because I've been beating this drum a little bit myself too. It, it, that I think that there's something to be gained from norm setting, and that this is a very not normative space, right? Yeah, now. cyber war is pretty norm free. I agree with you, and in that sense, I suppose there's some value. But I, I'm not. I mean, to the extent that that these norms are about um, moral weight. I think it's hard to say that Wall Street deserves our moral concern more than, say, utilities or, you know, dams that could flood whole cities. So, again, I think the financial system is is unique in that the degree of interdependence means you do not have to set it on the basis of moral concerns. So if you say, I, I agree not to attack your critical infrastructure – uh, that's a that's an agreement in which I'm agreeing to do it because you won't attack mine, right? But the argument don't we don't attack, you know, finance, key financial institutions, structural financial institutions, is partly that it will trigger a collapse that affects me as much as it affects you, and so there's there's a stronger basis. And part of Tim's argument is that this is actually in some ways already a bit of a norm in that, you know, major countries don't do this kind of attack. Um, and it's only really the rogue actors that do because major countries are so invested in the international financial system that, you know, taking out big banks is not something that is in any of any of those countries' interests to do. Uh, so I actually think there's there 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 may be something to it, uh, and as a as a norm that countries are invested enough in to uh, that you don't have to rely on anybody's goodwill for it. I'm actually waiting for the G20 governments to agree that none of them will hack into Sony Pictures. That they can agree on. It's been done. <laughs> Over it. All right, let's move on to object lessons. Um, Tam, you want to go first? Sure. So my object lesson is a tweet storm. Uh, a tweet storm by one Lauren D. Schulman, who many of you may know. She from, does good tweet storm, too. She does do good tweet storm, great tweet storm. And she also is part of a great national security podcast, just to do a little podcastery log rolling here for Bombshell, um, which, uh, which she is on and which drops every two weeks. Um, but Lauren today is tweeting a few uh, on behalf of uh, CNIS, the Center for New American Security, where she's a fellow. 
She's tweeting out some uh, responses that CNIS got to a survey that they did on women in national security. Um, and they haven't released the, the data and the analytics from the survey yet. So these are just quotations of written responses that they got uh, that are really quite fascinating. Written responses to the question, quote, we often hear it doesn't matter if you're a woman. As a woman working in national security, when did it first matter to you? And what I find really interesting about the tweet storm is that the responses reflect both positives and negatives for these women in, re in realizing that it matters that they're female. Uh, one response noted that when she was out in the field with male colleagues meeting with victims of conflict, uh, women were more willing to share with her their needs and concerns hmm. uh, than they were willing to share with her male colleagues. There were also a number of responses that related uh, sexism in the workplace being passed over for job opportunities and promotions and other frustrating aspects of being a woman in national security. So as we wind down uh, Women's History Month here at the tail end of March, I commend this tweet storm to all of you. Great reading. And thanks, Lauren and CNAS, for doing the survey. Great. Ben. So I have a related object lesson, which is um, my own byline. That's um, <laughs> so self-referential, Ben. Yeah, exactly. But it actually is related, and it actually is a matter uh, that I have discussed on Twitter with one Lauren Schulman. So I've noticed over the last few months that when I co-byline – uh, with um, Susan and Quinta, uh, mysteriously, lots of people, uh, particularly on Twitter, refer to me on the byline and don't refer to my co-authors. Now, this is what political scientists and social scientists would call a d an overdetermined variable because I am often the first byline and people sometimes just refer to the first. First author. First author. Um, I am the more senior person, uh, and we also have a little bug on the lawfare interaction with its Twitter bot, wherein it often it'll generally, unless we manually override it, tweet only the first byline. So we have these three non-gender related factors, and yet I have this feeling that uh, if the second author were, um, you know, male, that this dropping of the byline would happen much less often. And so I've been irritated by this and both, both I and Susan and Quinta at various times have, you know, corrected people. And the New York Times actually this week actually ran a correction about the byline of a lawfare post. After I uh, tweeted at them. Yes. So Twitter is good for something. Quinta <laughs> tweeted the fact that, you know, there was a second byline on it and they ran a correction. Um, but uh, I've decided that the solution to this problem is pure alphabetical bylines. Uh, I'm not going to impose it on the rest of lawfare. Um, but I am for my own purposes, going to, uh, whenever I am in the byline, I'm always going to uh, have alphabetical bylines so that we can say you should impute nothing to the order in which they uh, uh, appear. And I'll be very interested to see whether, since my byline 
uh, my last name, Wittis, is uh, later in the alphabet than both Hennessy and Jurassic, I will be really interested to see whether people continue referring to these as pieces by Benjamin Wittes or whether my name starts getting dropped or whether people are more careful about doing uh, all or both of the bylines in question. So it's a little social science experiment um, and uh, admittedly self-referential. <laughs> maybe, I'm, maybe I'm too much of a journalist in this, but you are relegating yourself now almost permanently to third byline status. I'm really, un- really unconcerned about that. Oh, spoken like a defrock journalist. <laughs> you know, uh, there's only one answer to this, which I, is you need to hire Sally Yates to write I, for you. Actually, it's actually, what it really is, is spoken like a former Washington Post editorial <laughs> writer who didn't have no a byline, byline at all right. and managed to survive 10 years of that without yeah. damage byline to my psyche. Sh- my line says you, you and everyone at the economist yeah <laughs> i actually loved writing without a byline uh i felt like you could get away with more didn't you yeah well uh, my, my my wonderful colleague uh late colleague peter milius uh when i once asked him why he didn't write a column in his own name uh, on the op-ed page he looked at me like i was nuts and he said why would i write under my name when i can write under don graham's name wow and i thought that was that answer made a okay. real impression on me as a twenty-seven-year-old, <laughs> uh, and and I, I I ended up never writing a column for 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 the post. See, from from here all out, everything wacky that Ben like slips into a piece that we co-write with him is going to be attributed to me and Susan. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. I think that's, <laughs> that's what we're really looking. That's forward what to this that. really is about. He just did some, uh, you know, some jujitsu uh, yeah. keto on you right there. Uh, Quint, do you have an object? Yes. Yeah, so my object is an object that did not manifest. So as our it's listeners the, have it's noticed, a dog that did not bark. <laughs> so Susan Hennessy is not here today, which is why I'm speaking to you now. Uh, but she very much wanted to talk with us about <laughs> Devin Nunes. <laughs> And had promised that she would get us a list of, at, at various points, it was like things she had to say to Devin Nunes or about, like, or about Devin Nunes, like mean words that we could use to describe Devin to, Nunes. To, from, or about Devin yeah, Nunes. Yeah, so, uh, so, so, so she these incidental might, or targeted remarks. <laughs> this, this would be about collection. <laughs> but he was the target. <laughs> So so when I chatted with her about that this morning, she had come up with one word, which was nincompoop, um, oh, which, which I now bequeath to you. And oh. she did not come up with the <clears throat> promise list. So that is the missing object. Oh, Susan. But yeah, just, we just know, know you can know do that better Susan, than nincompoop. Susan has so many things to say. I'm going to talk about this next week when she gets back. But for now, that brings us to the end of the show. Rational Security is a production of Spaghetti on the Wall Productions. You can find links to our show archives at our website. You can follow us on Facebook at RATL Security. Uh, no, that's on Twitter. Whatever. What are we on Facebook? <laughs> I think on Facebook Spaghetti we're just on us. The Spaghetti on the Wall Productions. Productions. Spaghetti on the Wall. Yeah, you can tell I'm really in with our social media right now. <laughs> when you download the podcast from your favorite podcatcher, please remember we to We are now on Google rating. Play, by the we're way. We're on Google Play. Yes. Wow. They're not sponsoring us, though, are they? No. And neither... <laughs> Is stamps.com <laughs> or and Harry's neither, razors? Neither is Harry's razors, and neither is me undies or Casper oh mattresses or the Humane Society this week. <laughs> <laughs> like, can, can I just say about uh, all our dog beating? <laughs> I, have a, I have a message to me undies that I want to oh, put God. out there because there's a lot of podcasts where 
let's be honest, guys. People are embarrassed to read the <laughs> MeUndies commercial. And, you know, like people say, um, you know, they talk about the MeUndies stuff as though they, they just got to get through it. There's no enthusiasm. As though they don't wear underwear. Right. And, you know, because they're talking about underwear. And let's frank, let's be honest, your product is a little bit peculiar. Um, if you sponsor Rational Security, we will do ben, the MeUndies. Ben will do <laughs> I, I promise. We will do the MeUndies commercial with panache. We will not shy away. We will... We will really get into the MeUndies commercial. Yeah. Oh, um, and now I'm terrified. We'll even write a dialogue. <laughs> I, I, I'm telling you guys, um, you are missing your opportunity for people who are unashamed. I, I no, think we're, I think we're very ashamed. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, we're, we're already there. Uh, the show is edited, as always, by Jen Howell, our audio engineer and guest this week, fellow panelist, Quinta Dresick. The show's music is performed by Devin Nunes and the Unmasked Circus. Ooh. Ooh, nice. Mm, that actually sounds it is like a John Le Carre circus. novel. Doesn't it? The Unmasked oh, Circus. Yeah, the circus. Yeah. Chorus yeah. of the Unmasked. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's all coming full circle. Uh, no, of course, the show, this music is performed, as always, by Sophia Yan. On behalf of Ben Wittes, Tamar Kaufman Wittes, and Quinta Jurassic, I am Shane Harris. We will talk to you next week. Thanks for listening. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com.